0: Welcome to our podcast series, Five Questions, Five Answers. We explore current U.S. trade policies and trade rules impacting thousands of companies. My name is Bridget Matissem. I'm the Director of North American Manufacturing here at Aaron Fox Schiff in Washington, DC. With the help of my guests, who I know will have the right answers, we translate the legal into real world strategies. Our goal, help business leaders understand the rules while increasing their bottom line. Let's start. Today, we're going to continue our discussion about trade policy in a various number of industries, particularly the manufacturing industry. But, you know, when people think about trade policy, it's usually about import policy. It's what's coming into the United States, to whom, what it is, where did it come from, what the tariffs are, et cetera. There's a whole other side of that coin, and it's called U.S. export policy most countries have their version of the same. The export policy here in the U.S. is uh, well used by the administration. It is not easily understood, and it has incredible ramifications for anyone in the manufacturing sector and beyond here in the United States, because essentially it means not what you're bringing into the country, what are you selling out of the country, And to whom? And what is it? Just to give you an idea, earlier this month, I think it was the 7th, the administration released something called an interim final rule on export controls. And it contained in that notice an enormous set of export controls aimed at, well, as in every headline these days, that the Chinese semiconductor industry, but also their advanced computing and their supercomputing industries. That impact will be destructive, to say the least, to both non- and non-U.S. companies that are selling into those sectors in that country. So given the nature of the relationship between the United States and China, I thought I'd ask my colleague, Kay Georgie, to come and explain to us what this interim final rule really means, why has it come about, what it changes, and what Type of export transactions are we talking about? Anyone who's read her bio knows that we are pretty lucky to have her with us today. She's a very busy woman. She's got significant experience in export control matters, but she also advises clients on U.S. and international laws relating to the export and import of defense articles, services, technologies, dual-use goods, nuclear equipment and other technologies. For people who are listening, you know that these industries are extremely vital both here in the US and abroad. So Kay Georgie, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Bridget. It's been wonderful to be on here and talk about the new rule. The new rule is amazingly complex. And so you've asked, what does it do? It's hard to put that all into a nice tidy box for people to look at. I try to think about it like the 12 Days of Christmas. There's the song. We can get to the five and the four and the three and the five golden rings, four, three. So what it does is it introduces, there's four main parts. So we're sort of starting at the four in the 12 days of Christmas, we've knocked out the top part. So it introduces four new export control classification numbers to worry about. It introduces, I think, three new foreign direct product rules to worry about. It comes up with two new end user rules. And it has a one gigantic restriction on U.S. persons. So let's parse this out a little bit and look at it. So there's these four new export control classification numbers. It's imposing new controls on essentially very high-end ICs, ICs that are very powerful in integrated circuits. And this is coming out of actually action that had been taken earlier. Some letters were sent to some U.S. producers saying that their specific chips would require a license for China. This is making sure that everybody is under the same restriction. So it's A new ECCN for those chips, so now control for export to China. A new ECCN for computers and electronic assemblies and things that the chips go into as well. And then there's associated controls for both the equipment to make the chips and the computers and to the software and the technology related to it. So all of these things sort of surrounding the chips, if you will now require a license. But it doesn't stop there. That's actually very controlled. And if your chip's there, your chip's there. If your chip's not there, it's not there. And you just, if you have servers and things where you might have those chips, you have to check out and see if the servers actually have those chips in it. So that's sort of like manageable. It's really the other three, the three, two, and one of the 12 days of Christmas, if you will. So the next thing is three foreign direct product rules. What is a foreign direct product rule? Well, the foreign direct product rule was an old rule that the Trump administration dusted off and put it on super steroids to go against Huawei. So it was kind of successful in the administration's view, I think. So they used the same rule for Russia and Belarus. And now what they're doing is they're taking that same rule and putting it on even more steroids to go after first a listing of additional companies. There's 28 new companies that are essentially in similar situation to Huawei. And then they're also using it for semiconductor fabs, but it's very narrow for this one. I'm not going to go into the details. And they have another one for supercomputing. And supercomputers are very carefully defined in the rule. One of the questions we have at the beginning is, could that affect data centers? We haven't really heard a definitive answer there, but it seems like it may not affect data centers. But if you happen to be operating data centers in China, you might want to take a very careful look at the definition of supercomputer. What do these new foreign direct product rules do? What they say is if you have products made outside the United States, so they're foreign, they're non-US, and they are either the direct product of certain technology or software that's subject to US export controls, then you need a license to sell the product or to actually export, re-export, or transfer the product. We say in EAR speak to either anyone on the list of 28 new Chinese entities or for specific advanced computing end uses or supercomputer end uses. And what this does is it expands the jurisdiction of the United States out from what it traditionally covers, which is things in the US, US origin things, and foreign origin things that contain more than de minimis to a whole bunch of other stuff, right? So that's number three, right? We're still working our way down (laughs) to. They're through the 12 days of Christmas. So then we go to end user and end use rules. And what they say is if your item is subject to the U.S. export controls, we say subject to the EAR or subject to the EAR, if you like to say it that way, then you need a license to export the item, which could be hardware, software, technology, to one of two end uses. One is fabs in China that make one of three different kinds of ICs at very specific levels. And the ICs are both a logic IC at a particular level, a NAND IC, which is a memory IC of more than 128 layers, or a DRAM of less than 16 or 18 nanometers. I have to look it up. So essentially anything going to these fab facilities in China requires a license. This is a huge expansion a huge expansion. I mean, DRAMs and NAND memories are typically year 99, meaning they're not controlled at at a high level. So to all of a sudden put all of these fab facilities on sort of like a do not fly list, if you will, is a huge, huge thing. So I think the industry has been busy trying to figure out which fab facilities might meet those standards. But that's only part of it. There's also another little less known part of it, which says if you're exporting anything subject to the ER, that's going to be used in the development or production of semiconductor manufacturing equipment in China that meets particular ECCNs, that's also covered. And I think that one is actually coming to a realization a lot of U.S. companies that sell to to companies that make semiconductor manufacturing equipment in China. Then there's also a supercomputer end use rule. I don't want to go into too much detail because you told me we only have 30 minutes and I still haven't gotten to the last of the 12 days of Christmas. completely without presence, I have to say. So the last one is the U.S. person restriction. And what it does is it's very sanctions-like. It's taking something we've done on the economic sanctions side for years. U.S. sanctions typically apply to U.S. persons, but we don't have that in export controls or we have it in a very narrow way. So for many, many years, U.S. export controls contained a U.S. person restriction having to do with weapons of mass destruction. So you and I, were in the U.S., we're U.S. persons. If you're a U.S. citizen, or a U.S. green card holder, you're a U.S. person. If you're a U.S. corporation or a U.S. partnership, you're a U.S. person. What the WMD said is if you engage in certain very specific activities in support of weapons of mass destruction, you would require a license to do that as a U.S. person. That was expanded maybe a year or two ago to include military intelligence end uses. Okay, well, most of us are not going to do military intelligence end uses. What this does is it creates a whole new list of things, and they're pretty broad in the semiconductor area. And I'm not going to go into the details because they are quite a lot, but remember the three kinds of Chinese fabs I just talked about, the ICE, logic IC fabs of a specific kind, NAND of more than 128 layers, and DRAMs with a production technology node of 18 nanometers. Half pitch or less. If you're talking about those facilities, US persons can't ship, transmit, transfer to those facilities any item that's not subject to the air. ER, okay. So it's pretty big. So suppose you're a US citizen who's working in China at one of those fabs and you're doing technology or you're in the US, but you have to ship to one of those fabs and it's a non-US product. So you're shipping from, say, Malaysia to a fab in China, but you're organizing the shipment because it's not just shipping, transmitting, or transferring. It's also facilitating that shipment, transmission or transfer, or servicing any item not subject to the air ER for one of those facilities. So it's really, really broad. There's another one down there that's much more specific. I'm not going to go into detail, but it's really that one. Sorry, I'm not giving you a chance to say a thing, Bridget. So talk, talk to me, please.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, I didn't want you to stop. Um, So I don't want you to lose your train of thought. But just for the point of clarification, Kay, because we have a lot of non-American based listeners to these podcasts. So the non-US product does it have to stay Malaysia that's shipped to China? Does that product or component or the company that in Malaysia, does it have to be a related company to a U.S. person or can it be completely third party?
1: No, it can be completely third party. So this affects not only U.S. companies and U.S. headquartered companies. It may, frankly, have a greater effect on U.S. headquartered companies because they're more apt to have technology or software or U.S. persons than non-U.S. companies. But no, it it completely affects non-U.S. companies. So let's just take an example. You have a facility in Malaysia that's making a product, and that product is going to one of these new 28 entities that are now Huawei-like, and it's made on a production line where one piece of equipment, say a piece of test equipment, is the direct product of certain U.S. technology, then that product that's made on the Malaysian line would now require a license to go to one of those 28 PRC companies. So it is very broad. And also, suppose the head of the factory in Malaysia is a U.S. citizen and the Malaysian factory is supplying a fab, China, that meets those criteria and the head of the factory has to sign off on the shipment of the product going to that fab that's made. And it doesn't have anything to do, the technology has absolutely nothing to do with the United States. That US person would not be able to ship the product to the Chinese fab. So US person restrictions have sort of fingers all over the place, meaning that it's very difficult. It's it's hard enough in the context of say, you know, a a sanctions regime such as the US sanctions regime on Iran or Cuba to deal with US persons or or Syria to deal with US persons all around the the world. But it's a chunk. It's like an embargo. Uh, And you can say, okay, you know, we have US citizens all over the world. We're just not gonna do business with Iran. It's kinda hard for, say, you know, a a non-U.S. headquartered company to say, you know, we're not going to do business with Chinese fabs, right? Or we're not going to have any U.S. citizens. So one of the questions, and I think one of the things that we've seen in the papers is a, a lot of companies have in China have sent their U.S. citizens and green card holder's home. Think, Bridget, of waking up one morning, you've spent a long time becoming an engineer. You come from another country, you become an engineer in the U.S., you've acquired green card status, and or you've even acquired a U.S. citizen, and you have this great offer from you know a company in China, and you've gone there, and all of a sudden you find out one day that the U.S. government has taken away your livelihood, and you have to choose. Seems a little crazy to me, but so that's me.
0: I get a lot of feedback from readers of our alerts, alerts that are on your website, on all of our practice group websites, and they always tell me how concise and fact-like and informative our alerts are. So obviously, I read your alert before this podcast, but in your alert on this subject, I think I read the line, this is going to be utter chaos. What did you mean by that, Kay?
1: Well, I think, yeah, I think I, I think you know what I mean because I just sort of described it. So. If you're in these industries, or if you're selling to these industries, and you either have a presence in China or you sell to China in these industries, it's kind of chaos for you. I think it's gradually, it's already been what it's been, three weeks since the seventh. I've aged, I've aged a couple years in those three weeks, but so still have some other people, by the way. So I think it's starting to become clear at this point, or a little bit more clear than it was when we first saw the 137 page document on October 7th. So I think it's become, a little clearer, but just so you know, I think one of the questions you want to ask me is what comes next? What comes next is the BAS is going to issue of what they call frequently asked questions, FAQs. Because there are a lot of things that are not defined. Fabrication facility, for example, is not defined. Facility is not defined. There's a definition in the air for facilities, but I don't think it's the one that goes with facility. So there's a lot of unanswered questions and uh, we are expecting FAQs out and that could reignite a whole chaotic period. But I think the chaos has been trying to figure out how does this impact my business? What do I need to do to stay in compliance? Because the other thing I should say is part of the rule went into effect on the 7th. And had a really nasty savings clause. The savings clause was pretty nasty all that because anything that was, you know, on board the dock, you know, or lighter or that that could continue as long as it got shipped on October seventh was okay as long as it got shipped by a date in November that we haven't hit yet. But you know, it came out on October seventh. Didn't even make the Federal Register in the next week, so it was sort of chaotic. So o- October seventh parts went into effect. October 12th, the U.S. person restrictions went into effect, and then the rest went into effect on October 21st, I think it was. So. You're seeing a huge number of controls going into effect over a very short amount of time. And so you have companies trying to make sure that they stay in compliance. They don't want to put their U.S. persons at risk, for one thing. You don't want to have your U.S. engineer or your U.S. uh, CEO at risk of violating U.S. export controls. So I think that's probably added a layer to the chaos is having individual human beings feeling that they might be running afoul of U.S. law.
0: So my last question, because I have 10 more, but I haven't got that time, and neither do you. My last question is, I'm sure your phone is ringing off the hook. What are you telling your clients right now about how they need or what they can do to mitigate any enforcement risk based on these interim final rules?
1: Well, each client's different because there's all different aspects of the rule, right? So are you supplying the semiconductor industry in China? Are you supplying the semiconductor manufacturing industry in China? Different rules apply depending on which portion of the regulation you fall under? Do you have chips that meet this new 3A090 standard? So it's not one size fits all in terms of advice. I think if you want to make general advice is if you're in any of those industries and if you sell to China, you need to take a good hard look at what you're selling and your joint ventures or whatever you have in China and see if you need to get licenses. Now, uh, Department of Commerce did issue some emergency authorizations to some companies' Headquartered outside of China on October 11th. So there might be a possibility of getting more of those. I don't know. Or alternatively, you might have to go in for a license or you might have to change how you do business. But whatever it is, first you have to get your arms around what the issue is and then come up with a strategy for managing it. Is it simply you stop exporting from the United States? Maybe there are alternative supplies that are not subject to the foreign direct product rule and don't meet de minimis. But without actually finding out what your risk area is, it's very hard to come up with a strategy. So first find out what the facts are and then get good counsel as to how to handle and stay in compliance.
0: Well, okay, Georgie can be reached at her email address, kkay.georgie, G-E-O-R-G-I at AFSLaw.com. Look her up. She's on the Aaron Fox Shift website. Thank you once again for the time that you've spent with us.